0: You are listening to As a Woman, Episode 35, Fertility and Nutrition. In this episode, I'm talking all about whole food, plant-based eating, and how it improves our nutrition in an interview with cardiologist, active vegan, and amazing woman in medicine, Dr. Danielle Bellardo. Join us to learn more about how what you eat impacts your body and specifically your fertility. And this is all about nutrition and fertility. To be honest, I have been meaning to do this episode for a long time. I was a nutrition major. I am whole food plant-based. I really recommend tending towards more whole foods with plants for my patients, limiting out processed foods, sugars, and limiting out meats if they can. And This episode has been on my heart for a long time, but those of you who know or who listen to Nutrition Rounds with Danielle Bellardo know that I recorded an episode for her podcast. So after however many, 35 episodes in, and I still haven't talked about this, I contacted her and Casey Johnson, who's her amazing producer, and said, maybe I can just repurpose the track because Danielle interviewed me and I shared some of my knowledge and my take on Nutrition for Fertility. And I'm resharing that interview here with you. So if you listened to this episode on Nutrition Rounds when it came out like eight months ago, I love you so much. Feel free to keep listening for a refresher. If you never did, feel free to check out Danielle's podcast for more information on plant-based eating and all organ systems. A quick intro in case you don't know her, Dr. Danielle Bellardo is simply amazing, a close friend of mine, and I look up to her a lot. Even though she's younger than me, she simply has a passion and is not afraid to put herself out there. She got her medical degree from Drexel University and then completed a three-year internal medicine residency at Temple University Hospital. She is board certified in internal medicine, and she's currently completing her cardiology fellowship at Lancu Heart Institute right outside Philly. She is dedicated to being a cardiologist that appreciates both traditional medicine and also lifestyle modification, including an emphasis on plant-based disease. She is a wonderful advocate for women in medicine. You can find her on Instagram or on her blog at theveggiemd.com. And she hosts the fabulous podcast, Nutrition Rounds. And if you haven't listened, you should go listen now. I just want to say a huge thanks to Danielle for interviewing me and having me on her podcast. And for agreeing that this would be a great episode to have here and as a woman as well. I hope you guys enjoy. I'm cutting right into when Danielle starts interviewing me, so you're going to hear her voice first, and then you know mine. Feel free to reach out for me with questions, and we're going to be talking more about this on my Instagram blog and podcast coming up. So,
1: Natalie, everyone's big question is always, can being plant-based, well, well, this will be twofold. One, can you have a healthy pregnancy being plant-based, and two, is there any reason that we need to eat animal products to help get pregnant? Or is it perfectly healthy to do it with a plant-based diet?
0: All right, Danielle, let's dive in a little separately. So if let's start with, this, can you be plant-based in pregnancy as the first part of that question? And Yes, yes. You can be plant-based in pregnancy. I think it's really important anytime we start talking about reproductive outcomes, especially those in pregnancy, it's really hard to study pregnancy in an RCT environment. You can't say, hey, these pregnant women are going to do this, and these pregnant women are going to do that. So most of the evidence that we have comes from observational studies and looking on maternal or fetal health outcomes based on if women are eating vegetarian or vegan you know depending on their spectrum a big meta analysis came out in the british journal of OBGYN in 2015 and that was probably the biggest one that we had that looked at 22 different papers looking at vegan diets or vegetarian they kind of combined them both and said hey all these studies are really, really different um there's no true randomized study so we can't say exactly hey this looks like this but the take home product was that being vegan, being plant-based, being vegetarian looked completely safe in pregnancy. There were no adverse fetal or maternal factors in any of the studies reported. And I think that's really important. However, there are some things that if you're gonna be plant-based in your pregnancy, I'm totally on board with it. I think you should. But you may need to modify your eating habits because you are eating for two and you wanna make sure that you have all the vitamins and everything that you need to have a healthy pregnancy. So, I think the biggest one, if we start with, is B12. So, right, like everybody wants to ask about vitamin B12 um, if you're plant based, and especially if you're plant based in pregnancy, because, you know, a truly plant based diet doesn't usually have tons of B12 unless you're eating like fortified foods, right? So, often people are um, consuming. Soy milk or other nut-based milks, and often those can be fortified or some some cereals or nutritional yeast. But often, um, and
1: actually, and I'll even I'll even stop you there um, with the fact that um, I check baseline B twelve in all of my uh, plant-based clinic patients. And what's funny is that um, because of course uh, I recommend highly that everyone who's plant-based uh, supplements B twelve, but um, what's funny is that I find a lot of patients who come to see me to go plant-based who um, have been eating animal products, and I check a. Baseline B twelve along with another panel of uh, different um, lipid profile, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, so many people are actually B twelve deficient, and they're already eating animal products. And right. No, so it's so funny because yes, being plant based, you one hundred percent have to, you know, be taking your B twelve. I recommend it to everyone because it's so hard to get it just from you know eating enough of the fortified foods. You know, not that it's impossible, but for me, I think it's safer to just recommend that all my plant-based patients take B twelve. But it's what's hilarious about it is that I've met so many patients that met me when they you know haven't been vegan yet and they are still B twelve deficient. So, so I, I do find the plant-based people that have been following the diet for a while and supplementing B twelve actually have quite better,
0: better right B twelve levels. Yeah, <laughs> I totally agree. I often think that sometimes um, our plant-based eaters are also You know they're really good at taking the supplements that they need, and they eat a diverse array of foods that helps them out. But I just recommend everybody take a B twelve supplement. And I mean, you know, all of our patients who should be getting pregnant or are pregnant are, you know, on a prenatal vitamin. So I always, you know, want to make sure they're looking at how much supplement is in that prenatal vitamin and making sure that that's enough. Usually, we want at least ten micrograms of B twelve in their supplement during pregnancy. And then, you know, just a couple other things I find. So vitamin D is super trendy in the fertility world. Um, We think that it is helpful in having normal vitamin D levels may improve reproductive outcomes like live birth rate or clinical pregnancy rate in IVF studies. And, you know, there's what I find is no matter what people are eating, you know, if they're animal based or they're plant-based, often their vitamin D levels like really low. Like so no matter like what, right? I think some of it is, you know, we're not out in the sun as much or we're better sun protection or, you know, we work indoors, whatever the reason may be. But I really want to make sure that all of my patients who are trying to get pregnant or who are pregnant are taking, you know, vitamin D. I love it. Yeah, and just kind of I, you know, have spent years checking levels and it's like almost everybody is deficient. And I find that my patients, women who are darker skinned, tend to be, you know, even lower on that vitamin D level. So they often need higher amounts of supplements. I recommend usually at least a minimum of a thousand international units of vitamin D a day. And so that's not in every prenatal vitamin. So you really have to look because some have much lower, you know, like I have one in front of me right now that has 800 IU, so that's close, but that's not everything. So you may need to take an extra vitamin D on top of what a prenatal vitamin has. And then I just I find a lot of my um, plant based patients will shy away from prenatal vitamins that have like DHA in them. They're like, oh, it has fish oil. I don't want to take you know fish oil. I don't want to have any fish product. So I'm just not going to take the prenatal, but. The industry has done better. So you can get DHA and you know, omega-3 fatty acids from algae-based supplements, but you may just have to hunt those down. And there's a prescription one that we can give patients too. So
1: yes, that's fantastic. I recommend a... Um, so uh, in my after-visit summary for all my patients that start seeing me in my clinic, because they, they want to know what vitamins to take. And, and one of the things I recommend is a um, an algae-based DHA EPA nice is uh, fantastic. They take 300, um, I believe it's micrograms of that or milligrams. Let me actually double check, but uh, daily. And then um, also I totally am on board with you about vitamin D. I, I find that everyone is deficient, but in medicine, uh, in internal medicine in general, it's a little debatable um, whether or not there's benefit to it. So I always say that's optional, but that's really interesting about fertility that you see that um, you know your patients are low in it as well.
0: Yeah, when we check it on an initial panel, it's like you know ninety plus percent of everybody we're checking is vitamin D, def- you know, deficient, and they're going to need extra supplementation. And some patients even need like prescription strength, you know, fifty thousand IU's a week or something super high to try to get them replaced in an efficient time frame. So especially if you're listening and you're a woman and you're thinking about getting pregnant coming up. I would just go ahead and start supplementing with that so you can um, hopefully not be deficient when you're, you know, at the time you're ready to be pregnant. That's
1: brilliant. I love it. And by the way, for anyone listening, the algae-based DHA EPA that I recommend is 300 milligrams daily uh, and it's completely vegan. Do you have a different dosage you would recommend for no, that's people? that's the exact same. Okay, great. And so the other
0: question is folate. So Yes. How, yes. So you need. So in a a normal patient, you know, no matter what you eat, if you're a plant-based or you're not. Everybody's recommending a 400 micrograms of folic acid, and it's just really crucial for the neural development of the baby, for spinal cord, so you don't get neural tube defects. This can be, you know, received from a lot of food, especially plant-based eaters often find on folate, like leafy greens and broccoli and asparagus and avocado. They all have folate in them. However, and our grains are supplemented with folate too, which is really helpful. But that supplementation, you know, when the grain industry started to supplement really changed the incidence of neural tube defects that we saw. So when I see patients who are or anti-medications or supplements, and they don't want to take a supplement, I'm like, I really try to push a folic acid supplement. Even if they don't want to take a combined prenatal for whatever reason, just a separate folic acid, because it's not worth it if for some reason you're not getting the right things from your diet. Now, what I always caution women from is when these things are developing in early pregnancy, you may have pregnancy hormones, you may feel really sick, and your diet may not be as robust as it is normally when you're not pregnant, and it's just not worth the health of your baby to something that could be prevented with an easy supplement. So I really pushed hard that all patients need to be on at least 400 micrograms. That number is higher if you've had a previous baby with a neural tube defect, or if you're on anti epileptic medication because they change the metabolism of folic acid. And so those patients need to be on a whole milligram. So a much higher dose. That is
1: so interesting. I, I think that's such a great point. I feel we are exactly on the same page. I see patients all the time who are plant-based who come to see me specifically for this reason, and they say, well, I'm getting this and this and this from my fortified foods. That's fine, but I agree with you. I think that the negatives are so outweighed by the benefits of just taking the supplement because even if you are eating a lot of nutritional yeast that has B12 in it or other you know things, and even if you think you're getting all of your... um You know, omegas from flax, it's really hard on a day to day basis. And I just think it's safer to just take the supplement for B12. I agree, folic acid. And just, you know, a B12 deficiency is just detrimental to life in so many ways, shapes, and forms. And neural neural tube defects, like you're saying, are completely just avoidable by trying to supplement appropriately.
0: Yeah. And for, you know, people who may be listening who aren't as medically inclined as we are, you know, a neural tube defect is when the spinal cord is open and exposed. And it usually results in, depending on the severity, it can have, you can have complete paralysis below the level of the lesion and it's life-changing for a baby, especially if the only reason they had this is a deficiency in what mom was taking. And I don't think, I usually really try to play on people's hearts and say, I think it's a little selfish to say, I'm just going to get all of this from food because I don't want to take a nutrient. And I try to push your boundaries and say, this is pregnancy and you know, this is not the time to be selfish. This is when even if you don't love supplements, you do it because you're doing what's best for your baby. And so just really trying to write home that I think some women hear neural tube defect that they don't really understand how severe that can be. And that it really, you know, it leaves them with a child that could be disabled if it's a really severe thing.
1: Wow. That is such a great point. I'm so glad you pointed that out. And that is really just interesting. We really do recommend the same vitamins. So for my six year old male patients, if you're thinking about getting (laughs) pregnant, you're already good to go. (laughs) Uh, No, uh, I leave out the folic acid, but I'm glad that you all, um, you're recommending that. And that's, uh, we really are on the exact same page. The other thing I wanted to touch on with you uh, is regards to, you know, like I had mentioned, the second part of that question was, you know, is there anything you need from animal products to kind of create a healthy pregnancy? And I wanted to give you, so from my standpoint, what I find, um, there's some overlap between um, OBGYN and cardiovascular disease. And what I think it's being more and more appreciated by the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association. So much so to the point that now um, we are considering preeclampsia as a cardiovascular risk factor. So if you are a patient that's a female that's um, had pregnancies before, as a cardiologist, we should be asking you, did you have preeclampsia during your pregnancy? Because that's considered a risk factor for cardiovascular disease later on. And so, um, you know, Obviously, I do not know the data or the information about pregnancy and plant-based nutrition, but I can only imagine, knowing that we have so much data to show that plant-based nutrition helps to decrease BMI, helps to lower your risk of developing diabetes and hypertension, that these comorbidities that make pregnancy so difficult in 2019 to manage, um, I can only imagine that it's Healthier, if you overall are healthier going into the pregnancy, does that kind of
0: follow suit or what do you think? Oh, that's true for sure. I think two of the most common things we see in pregnancy, and granted, you know, I'm now taking care of patients at the very early stages, but in pregnancy overall, two of the biggest things that we're going to see one is preeclampsia and one is gestational diabetes. And these have huge impacts for mom and for baby. And so preeclampsia, you know, is essentially kind of in layman's terms, high blood pressure of pregnancy. We really think it's a placental disease. So it's a malfunction of the the placenta. And like you said, the placenta is just vasculature. It is connecting mom and baby's blood source. And so it really makes sense that if you're at risk for vascular dysfunction of your placenta, you're at risk for vascular dysfunction and cardiac disease later. Um, There's certainly risk factors for preeclampsia, like you know, being overweight or having already existing high blood pressure and some of those things that can be modified. But there's also other things like it just being, you know, your first baby or or being an older mom and some things that you can't avoid, right? If it's your first baby, everybody, you're going to have a baby is going to have a first baby. Um, Certainly, women who are healthier overall tend to do better. And we do think there's ongoing data trying to look at what can help with preeclampsia. You know, are there foods that you can eat that can try to, you know, reduce your risk of preeclampsia or reduce your risk of it developing into severe stages? You know, in severe stages of preeclampsia, the only cure is delivery. And we have seen women deliver preterm, you know, like pre-viable even, because their preeclampsia is so bad, because from a maternal endpoint, it can end in seizure, stroke, and death. And so it's a very serious disease. The The truth is that, um, you know, pregnant women don't have to have animal products. You know, those who are vegetarian or plant-based are tending to fare well in some studies and that's because it looks like you know vitamins vitamin C vitamin a certain things that you're getting more commonly from food um, is being is helpful also like trace minerals like selenium are can be helpful in prevention of preeclampsia and there's also some evidence that you know baby aspirin can try to help prevent disease which probably is not surprising to you as a cardiologist you know so I same kind of thing I tell patients hey eating Healthy older patients or patients at high risk are getting started on a baby aspirin early on. And we, you know, prenatal vitamins often have a lot of supplementation of some of these vitamins and minerals that patients need. So same kind of message as far as making sure that you're getting what you need. But overall, diet probably plays a bigger component than we even know right now in some of the etiology of that disease. So when I see women who had a really severe case in a prior pregnancy and they're looking looking to get pregnant again. I really talk hard about what are they eating? What can we change? How can we put their heart health and their cardiovascular system in the best place to be pregnant before we go and get them pregnant again?
1: That's so fascinating. That's really interesting. The aspirin part is so interesting. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. So is the mechanism of that just inflammatory that they're trying to, are they just trying to uh, like modify the COX-2 pathway? Like, What is the etiology that that would... Be something to reduce the risk of preeclampsia
0: and pregnancy. This is fascinating to me. <laughs> We're like working on the, the, you know, fringe of where we both are. Um, <laughs> you're exactly right. It's definitely about like the COX-T pathway and thinking that inflammation, kind of like insult and inflammation are what's kind of leading to the disease state there and that it can help kind of prevent it from earlier on. It's looking like we have to start it in the first trimester for it to be effective. And so it's not like you can get to 30 weeks and have high highish blood pressure and start aspirin then and see a difference. So it's really more of a preventative thing as far as decreasing that inflammation from an early stage.
1: That's so interesting. And as anyone that listens to my podcast knows, we talk about inflammation in every single episode (laughs) because it is the etiology of so much dysfunction. And a big part of my podcast is that I have different specialists. So I've had a gastroenterologist, cardiologist, internal medicine, and, and... every specialty and every single specialty, someone has had to say something about the fact that inflammation plays a part in their disease process. And it's just, it's interesting to hear that because we do have, although not applied to pregnancy, we do have a lot of data and research that shows us that plant-based nutrition can decrease systemic inflammation um, in many disease processes. So it's just, it's fascinating. I can only imagine, you know, this is a great area to, to be researched because I think that it could really have a, a positive, Positive effect, but you know that again,
0: we like you were saying you can't really randomize pregnant patients in diet, so it's a little tough to study. It is. I think that I think that's one of our biggest um, limitations in reproductive medicine in general. And when we start diving into fertility-based outcomes, that's the case also. But just because there's no easy outpoint to study just because it's not easy to randomize a trial and these reproductive outcomes, it doesn't mean it's not relevant. And that's what I always try to send home to patients when we start talking about diet and fertility or you know diet and reproduction is that hey, just because there's not any Really strong studies out there, that doesn't mean that it's not important or impactful. It just means that it's difficult to study, and we have to use the literature that's out there and apply it to what makes sense for each patient individually.
1: That's such a great point. Um, Actually, so you are at the crux of like this great position where you are seeing patients at this young age before a lot of them have developed the comorbidities that I end up treating and seeing at a later age. um, Although people that are coming in with STEMIs and hypertension are getting younger and younger, but you know, you are seeing women that are, you know, many of them without the comorbidities that. That I discuss day to day basis. So you're actually in this great area to really counsel and treat people in health and wellness when they start. So tell me a little bit about you know how nutrition plays a role in general infertility and how you know with your patients when you see them is it on this patient population women trying to get pregnant is nutrition and lifestyle a part of their mindset or is this something you bring up in in, in the office? How how
0: does it all kind of come together? So I see patients at a variety of different stages. You're right. You know, most of my patients are reproductive age women, and overall, most of them are healthy. Not a lot of them have already developed really severe comorbid factors, and if they have, we really try to control that so that it's safe before pregnancy. Infertility... So for those who are listening who are, who are not as common in, in my world, you know, infertility is, you know, trying to get pregnant and not being able to. The definition is trying for 12 months if you're under age 35, or six months if you're over age 35 without success. The average conception rate is about 20 to 25% per month. And so on in general, most people will be pregnant within four to five months if there's no issues. Now, that's presuming that a lot of different factors are in play, that a man has sperm, that a woman is ovulating, that her fallopian tubes are open. And one of the signs of ovulation is having regular periods. So as a caveat, if you are listening and you do not have regular periods, you need to go see an OBGYN or come see me, a fertility specialist, right away. There's no length of time that you have to wait. Um, That's one of the easiest groups for us to study is women who have ovulatory problems or irregular periods. But overall, in fertility, it's a very disempowering situation. So you are trying to achieve something that most people are able to get pregnant. You probably spent many years of your life as a woman trying not to be pregnant and using... Contraception of some form, you know? Right. And so now suddenly, okay, you got your stars aligned, your career's in the right place. Now you're trying and it's not happening. And so I find patients come in really wanting to take charge of anything that they can do to increase their odds of conception. And there's a lot that they can't do, but lifestyle factors, that's what they can control. So I try to talk to diet in you know, lifestyle modification when it comes to stress, exercise, diet, to most of my patients um, because I find that they really are looking for, well, how can I put my best foot forward? What can I do? And so we say the same thing. I say, hey, fertility is hard to study as we already talked about, but current evidence is suggesting that diet is a modifiable factor of your success, especially for female fertility. And it appears that you know, a fertility diet. There's people are using that term really loosely, but it looks like the best overall diet doesn't, it's not a fad diet. It doesn't have a name. It's a diet that is full of vegetables, fruits, and whole grains. You know, it is not a keto diet or Mediterranean diet or this or that. It is just a really pure diet that's giving you all the vitamins and nutrients that you need. Um, And I kind of try to break down, you know, I see a lot of patients You know, that say, hey, well, I wanted, I'm not going to eat carbs because I need, I'm doing keto or I'm trying to lose weight. And I think it's important to differentiate a few different things. So, one is being of a healthy weight is important for conception. So, one of the biggest studies that we have that looks at weight alone shows that, you know, the kind of a good BMI, your normal BMI uh, between 19 to 22 is kind of like the best, most fertile zone there. So, if you're very thin, Where you're more overweight, you're going to have a harder time getting pregnant. So it's not all about weight loss for everybody, right? Like it's about being in a healthy weight so that your body feels comfortable that it can support another life. One of the best studies that we have out there was the nurse's health study. We might as well dive into it for just a moment because there was a whole book written about it called The Fertility Diet by one of the leading researchers in fertility and diet outcomes out there. And, you know, this kind of looked at a bunch of nurses who retrospectively, they they filled out a questionnaire about like what they ate and their history and this and that. And so it's not a randomized controlled trial, but they're looking backwards, but there were tons of women. And because they were nurses, they filled it out very completely because they have good attention to detail. And what I found out is that what I took home is some of the big points of it. One is that for every serving of protein that came from vegetable sources over animal sources, there was an increase in the probability of conception. That was one of the biggest take-homes. That was one of the first studies to kind of show, hey, where where you're getting your food from, the sources of it, is probably more important than the amount of calories that you're taking in. That's so true. interesting. And so that study saying, hey, and, it, and I use this all the time because I see patients who... Going plant-based, or if I even said the word vegan out loud to them, you know, their eyes may bulge out. It's just too hard of a jump. And I say, hey, look, look starting here. And this study came out. For every serving that is a is vegetable-based over plant-based, you're gonna have a higher chance of getting pregnant. So Start by eating meat just one time a day, you know, make, you know, vegetarian meals in the the morning, in the middle of the day, and just have meat at the end of the day and then start to drop it out, you know, and kind of go that way. But you're already making huge strides by taking those animal sources out of those meals. So every serving that you're going more plant-based, you are making an improvement. And I think that feels like a more tangible goal for most patients One thing that we really think is important, and I'm kind of digressing, is this whole... um, You know, when we look at fertility, there's so many different things that go into it, right? And so... PCOS always comes up. I mean, do you want to dive into that?
1: Yes, absolutely. I um I, I think that this is another topic that I've been asked about a lot. And PCOS also has a lot of overlap with internal medicine and cardiovascular disease because these patients should be evaluated by an internist as well. Um, and I think I cannot wait to hear your take on PCOS and plant-based nutrition because I've been asked this a lot and I think it's important because it's really a bridge of, you know, a lot. Of women in this age range are not seeing a primary care provider. And yes, you totally guys in, in OBGYN, you guys in fertility, you are their primary care provider. So I really would love to hear, you know, everything about this PCOS and with regards to plant based nutrition and, and how you think we can help with it and what it is and everything uh, from you.
0: So let's just start at the beginning. PCOS is polycystic ovarian syndrome. It is a very common disease in women what if we're looking at the diagnostic definition so you have to have 2 out of 3 and it's irregular menses so irregular periods high androgens that's either blood levels that are showing that you have high androgens like testosterone or clinical signs of androgens like acne extra hair growth or even like hair loss in your temporal areas and then ovaries that look Polycystic on ultrasound, which means they have lots of small follicles. Most of us in fertility really believe that irregular menses are like hallmark of the disease. I Meaning, if you have high androgens and ovaries that look this way, but your periods are regular, your disease isn't so bad. Irregular menses to us is really the hallmark of it, and it's really an ovarian dysfunction. And the easiest way that I like to describe it to patients. Your ovaries are making too many androgens and they fail to respond to the brain for the signals for ovulation. They get confused because they're so used to making testosterone and other androgens over some estrogens. And so the brain sends out its normal signal and you have all these small eggs there that want to respond, but instead of the cells that make estrogen... The cells that make testosterone and other androgens are getting stimulated. We think that insulin resistance plays a huge role in this process, and that's because high insulin levels. So insulin resistance—I'm sure you talk about on the show all the time. Um, you know, essentially, when you're eating foods, your body is having to release higher and higher levels of insulin to combat some of these, you know, high glycemic index foods, and. That high insulin level is increasing androgen expression by these thecal cells in the ovary and you're having an increased androgen expression. So it is like fueling the fire of PCOS. So I always say, hey, we have got to stop this cycle for PCOS, and diet is part of the picture. So if you're taking care of these women and you're not talking about diet, you're not doing the best service for them. So A diet that counters insulin resistance is key, and certainly protein from animal sources. We know that it increases insulin resistance. Saturated fatty acids from animal sources does this. Um, You know, good things are fiber is good. You know, so vegetables and fruits; those things are good, right? Refined carbs, additional sugar; those things are bad. And and soy is not bad. That's a that's a side that I always get asked. But those, but that kind of diet. So eating. Whole grain carbs, right? Some that have fiber. Eating lots of vegetables and fruits, like that's the diet that our PCO patients really need, and that's going to be part of it. Now, as far as getting pregnant, can diet do everything? It, there's such a. It's. I think of it as a um, spectrum of disease. So, in some patients, maybe the diet's all that they need to kind of reverse where their disease is. Some patients, you know, need medication also, metformin is one that's commonly used, you know, and some patients, even with those lifestyle modifications or medications are going to need fertility assistance to get pregnant using medications to really make them ovulate. It's important to know, and I always think this is where, um, I don't want to say pop culture, but like You know, when patients get diagnosed with PCOS or they go look at their own research, there's really two different phenotypes of the disease, and I'm sure you know this too, right? So I always say, hey, there's like a thin PCOS and there's an overweight PCOS. The heart of the disease is that your ovaries are not functioning, but when you are overweight, your fat cells they make estrogen, and that confuses your brain and will lead. So the combination of fat cells making estrogen plus insulin resistance from obesity leads to a PCOS kind of phenomenon. And so it's actually the most common phenotype now because so many women in our country are overweight or obese. And so PCOS is now often thought of as a disease of being overweight. It is associated with metabolic risk factors, but not just for overweight or obese women. Then women have them too. But these overweight women, we have shown that if they lose about 10% of their body weight, they can resume ovulation again. And that's because now they don't have the fat cells making the estrogen. Often they're improving their insulin resistance and their cycle can kick back in a little bit easier. So I always describe, hey, if you're overweight maybe you have PCOS and losing weight's not going to make a difference, or maybe you have kind of overweight-induced PCOS and making these diet changes and losing weight totally kind of cures you of what's going on. We don't know, but that needs to be part of our goal anyway. They tend to respond better to all of our treatments because kind of their brain ovary axis is working. It's in sync. Women who are a thin PCOS... Are going to have a much harder time. I mean, they don't need to lose weight. They're often already very thin. Um, they often, you know, if they have diets that are high in sugar or that are really heavy in animal products, we need to shift off of that. But they often are going to really need help to get pregnant no matter what. So, understanding that it's not one disease that has a universal phenotype and that everybody should be treated the same way, that's not the truth there. And so, It's associated with so many other risks also, you know, risk of gestational diabetes in your pregnancy, risk of having type 2 diabetes later on. It's associated with high blood pressure in pregnancy, high blood pressure later on, high cholesterol levels, you know, this whole gamut. And so women who truly get diagnosed with this, they really need to be evaluated Outside of just the reproductive spectrum, spectrum also, I'm sure you feel strongly about that.
1: Very strongly. There's actually some data showing that women with PCOS have been shown to have some—not um, all women, but some women with PCOS have been shown to have some subclinical atherosclerosis already at this age. They could be 30 years old and already developing the risk factors. We know, you know, we know that even children can have uh, fatty plaques developing, but women with PCOS are, as you know, uh, you know, incredibly high risk for heart disease. So I, I find this to be very relevant to my field. You know, if I hear a patients had PCOS... PCOS when they were younger or has PCOS, you know, I definitely take note because, you know, a lot with regards to diabetes and insulin resistance and, you know, it really does all tie in with metabolic syndrome and what we're trying to prevent with cardiovascular disease, you know, in the long term. Um, Fagafuri et al this is a paper that came out in 2017 they said a favorable dietary plan in women with pcos should contain low amounts of saturated fatty acids additionally sufficient intake of fiber rich diet from whole grains legumes vegetables and fruits with an emphasis on carbohydrates with low glycemic index is highly recommended so like you're saying you know focusing on whole foods and plants. And and I'm actually really glad that you brought up the soy point of view too. I covered this last week's episode because I get asked about soy a lot. But um, in 2018, there was a randomized trial compared soy-containing diet Versus a higher animal protein diet in that was the control group in women with PCOS. So both groups ate the same total calories, protein, carbs, and fat. Um, Compared with the control diet that ate animal protein, the soy diet led to significant decreases in body weight, waist circumference, insulin, insulin resistance, blood sugar, and triglycerides. And it helped to counteract. Hormone disruption. So, you know, I find that treating PCOS, um, I actually have had a few patients who've come to see me with PCOS who are also seeing uh, fertility specialists. And what's interesting is I'm always like, oh, if, I, if only I was, you know, near you, I'd be sending them to you because I've had some patients that have said to me, my fertility doctor does not think it's safe that. I am, you know, whole food plant-based. And, you know, I know that that's false, even though I'm not in fertility medicine. Um, but it's funny because I think that it's a confusion in the space. And, you know, I experienced that within cardiovascular disease as well. What diet's healthy, what diet's not. You know, we have we have different specialists that think all different things. Um, but what I find interesting is my patients with PCOS who have seen me in my plant-based clinic that have been the, the kind of PCOS that are overweight with weight loss and with The change in their um, lifestyle modification, increasing exercise, they've dropped their hemoglobin A1C, their lipid profile comes down, their high-res CRP decreases drastically. So we know that their inflammation's down. And I've been able to see several of them get pregnant. So I think it's interesting because I think that the, you know, our bodies as a whole react to what we're eating. Like you are what you eat is just so true. And this spans everything from our heart. From our liver, from our gastrointestinal system to our reproductive system,
0: I just totally agree, and I want to touch base on soy one more time because, sure. um, you know, it gets a it gets a terrible bad rap because, especially in my space where everybody's really concerned about hormone levels and PCOS being like this dysfunction of hormone levels and soy has phytoestrogens and does that mimic estrogen activity in your body and is it safe for you? Is it going to throw off your hormones? And there's been you know, no correlation between soy intake and, and getting pregnant in any prospective studies. And in studies looking at fertility treatments, there have been improvements in reproductive outcomes in women with a higher soy intake than those who had a lower. And we don't think it actually has anything to do with the estrogen-like components. It's actually not that um, high of a estrogen like level in the body we think it's because when you're eating soybeans or you're eating soy based proteins you're usually eating other high plant and nutrient-rich foods also and so those women undergoing fertility treatments who fall into the highest soy intake category probably are those that are very highly if not totally plant-based and so they're having a very different diet than those that are high in you know saturated fats and animal products but so I always say hey soy has shown no harm and in fact, in infertility patients, it's actually shown improvement in reproductive outcomes. And that's probably, I'm not saying soy is magic, like everybody go eat soy. But I think <laughs> people who have good high soy intake have otherwise high, really good nutrient and plant-based diets and that that's the way that you should be eating.
1: And, you know, so what's so interesting to me, so I ask this uh, to everyone in every specialty that that comes on here, and I know you're plant-based and, you know, this is a part of the way you try to help your patients as well. And my question is, is how come in your specialty, why do you think nutrition, specifically plant-based nutrition, um, is not emphasized? Why do you think that, you know, because my patients who um, went to see a fertility specialist, you know, they really say to me, oh, they don't want to talk about nutrition or, you know, they don't even delve on nutrition at all. And and why do you think that it's so lacking in our culture in
0: medicine? I think it's twofold. One, I think that time is always an issue for providers. And especially in my field, you know, I'm seeing you for a new patient visit It's 45 minutes. I mean, that's pretty long. Yeah. But I'm going through your whole reproductive history. I'm explaining your whole reproductive tract to you. You know, I'm explaining how your brain sends out hormones to your ovaries and how you ovulate and all the different things that can cause infertility and all the different tests that we're going to order. And if something's wrong, then we're going to talk about these high-tech processes like IVF and other things that takes a while to explain to patients who are not familiar with a lot of the terminology. So I think time is one limitation. Two, I think, you know this also, lack of resources or education for providers. I mean, I I was a nutrition major in college and I mean, that was eons ago, but I've always had a high interest in nutrition. So I think that in some way sets me a little bit apart. Certainly was taught minimal nutrition in medical school Absolutely. I, I mean, like, it was not. It was like not brought up in ob residency or fellowship. Right. I feel like you know, I got a master's in clinical research, which which helps me evaluate scientific studies better to see if they're worthwhile and how they are done. But truly, I feel like I'm knowledgeable about it because I choose to be because it's important to me, and I believe it's important. So I'm educated on it. So I think that a lot of providers aren't taught. We're not taught this in medical training. Um, that's a problem with the system. Too is that we'd often don't necessarily have the time or the resources to go into it in our daily base. I think um, we would love it. I would love if I had a nutritionist with me, you know, to be able to have that kind of concept. And some fertility clinics have those resources. Um, that would be great to be like, okay, we need to talk about diet, but I got to go do an egg retrieval. So here's the nutritionist, but. I think it's lack of resources, lack of education, and time. And some of those are just current issues in the medical system in general right now. But it, it doesn't mean that it's not important or impactful. I mean, I see patients, and certainly there's some cases that no matter how good or bad you eat, like you need IVF. like You have some other problem. Your fallopian tubes are blocked. It doesn't matter what your diet is. You have to do IVF. And some providers may say, well, Why am I going to go into it? And I would argue, hey, especially if the patient is interested and they're trying to optimize their outcome or take a hold of what they can and put themselves in the best chance for success, especially with some of the latest data. I mean, I might as well say that they did a reanalysis of the nurse's health study and published this year, so 2019, in the American Journal of OBGYN, one of our big journals. And they said, hey, in patients undergoing... ART or assisted reproductive technology like IVF, the highest tech stuff we have, a fertility diet. So they define that as one that's high in supplemental folic acid, vitamin B12, vitamin D, low pesticide residue produce, so organic produce, whole grains, soy foods, and seafood over red meat had a higher probability of live birth. So even with IVF and that was a huge statement to come out there. I think the fish over red meat is really hard in the reproductive world. We have some really good studies showing that red meat in general performs worse across the board. Higher risk of endometriosis, lower risk of live, you know, lower chance of live birth with IVF. So it's really easy for people to be like, okay, red meat is bad. Wow, that's fascinating. We do yeah. you want to delve more into that. That's so interesting. So yeah. what have you found with red meat specifically and uh so one of the studies um, was looking at endometriosis risk. So consumption of meat and risk of endometriosis. And, and just because, what's that, and, and explain it if you don't mind. Sorry, what okay. endometriosis? Yeah. So your favorite topic of inflammation. So endometriosis is really an inflammatory disease. So to put it really simple, endometriosis is when the endometriums, that's the lining of your uterus, that's what you bleed every month. In most women, so like when you're having your cramps and you're having your period, some of those endometrial cells migrate their way out the fallopian tubes. And I just explained to people, hey, endometriosis, to put it really plain, is when your body sees those endometrial cells and views them as foreign material. So instead of saying, okay, well, she's just on her period, no big deal. We say, oh my gosh, there's these cells in here and we need to attack them. And so you get high levels of inflammation around all of these endometriosis implants throughout the pelvis. The hardest thing for us is that it is diagnosed surgically only. So there's no test we can do. You can only diagnose it with surgery. And the symptoms, the biggest symptoms are Pain. So, like you have painful periods or pain with intercourse. But the hard thing is, some women have had endometriosis for so long, they, they just think that's normal. So, trying to really understand pain is its own separate issue. But um, a study from this nurses' health study, too, so it had like over 80,000 p- nurses. You fill out these questionnaires, they look back, and the more red meat that people consumed, the higher the chance that they had of having endometriosis. And I think that's fascinating. I think the, the reason why um, the fish is so on the fence, one is that, you know, when they categorize, like they look at red meat, you know, so it's like red meat better than fish, but it doesn't mean that fish is necessarily good. And they even came out in this study and said, Hey, like fish and shellfish was kind of unrelated. Like doesn't mean it's good. Doesn't mean it's bad. And that may be that if you're looking at just a a prospective and observational study of dietary patterns, you're not going to have tons of you know, pure vegetarians or vegans in the population. And so people who maybe don't eat red meat and eat fish are also tending more to higher plant-based in other ways. And so they may have overall healthier other diets. But I really think, and what's coming out to some of us is saying, hey, red meat, those high animal products, high saturated fat, that's going to increase inflammation in our body. And also, what we, what we don't know, I mean, so I'm, I'm stretching, although a lot of us are hypothesizing that consumption of these animal products is an easy pathway for environmental contaminants to enter the body. You heard them come out with that statement of, you know, low pesticide residue organic food. Um, and that consumption of some of this animal product also increases our exposure to endocrine disruptors, to steroid hormones, to growth hormones that are in the industry, and that if we are blind if we think that exposure to endocrine-disrupting chemicals or growth hormones are things that we give our animals to make them make more meat or produce better from an animal standpoint, that then consuming those animals and those products is not going to have a lasting impact on us, especially when it comes to reproduction. That's a hormone-dependent process for our own body. We're just turning a blind eye to it because we don't want to hear it. You know, so I think that we are really, as as people are starting to dive into this, there's been studies categorizing meats, you know, red meat, bad, fish, okay, or necessarily not harmful. I think as we start to see more women go plant-based on their own, we'll start to have better data looking really at that versus, you know, any animal products. And I bet we're going to see you know, even improvements in reproductive outcomes there. It's fascinating.
1: That's so fascinating. And um, the advanced glycation end products, The um, I'm not sure if you, you discuss those a lot with regards to fertility. I've seen some papers talking about the uh, advanced glycation end products in PCOS and then mentioning, so for anyone that doesn't know, these are these reactive molecules that are present in certain foods, um, especially when they're cooked at high temperatures. These can induce uh, insulin resistance, aging, cellular damage, inflammation. They're high, very high in foods that are in contain beef, pork, poultry, cheese, butter, cream cheese, processed snack foods. And they're very low. So AGEs are low in uh, foods that are whole grains, legumes, vegetables, and fruits. So women with PCOS, there's been a few studies that have shown women with PCOS tend to have higher levels of AGEs and AGE receptors. So, um, you know, these diets low in AG is they, they reduce this inflammation, this insulin resistance in PCOS. And I'm wondering if that's also a
0: factor with fertility too, or if it could be. I mean, certainly. So it's easy to study PCOS in some ways because it's a defined disease. So it's easier to like isolate out your pop- population and they're a little more homogenous than just infertility in general. But certainly if we say, hey, we've already defined, PCOS is ovarian dysfunction. And we know that the ovary, okay, the ovary's job, I mean, this is like is to take cholesterol into the ovary and convert it into hormones, converts it into estrogen, converts it into androstenedione, which is an androgen. That's the ovary's entire job. This comes from granulosa and fecal cells. They work together and estrogen is expressed as an simultaneously as an egg is growing in a normal cycle. So women have varying levels of these hormones throughout their cycles. But the ovary's job, it's a hormone production factory. It takes cholesterol and makes hormones out. And so these AGEs are associated with higher androgen levels in women with PCOS. We think it alters how these enzymes function. So like cytochrome P450, like enzymes that are crucial in this cholesterol hormone synthesis organ of the ovary are being altered, you know, we think by AGEs. And so whether it's so we can say, hey, we've kind of shown this with PCOS, um, you know, how does that impact a woman who doesn't have PCOS, but I'm challenging her ovaries with IVF. I'm now asking her ovaries to go into hormone production factory extreme, right? Because I'm giving her all these drugs. I'm really trying to get lots of eggs to grow to help overcome her husband's low sperm or whatever. And are her ovaries going to respond better in a low AGE environment? I think that's fascinating. And we don't have the answer, but we could certainly draw the line that if we know it's playing a role in the dysfunction of the ovaries and PCOS, couldn't it impact how our ovaries respond when challenged, when we're trying to get a better response from fertility treatments? I think it's fascinating.
1: So fascinating. And I love you saying, did you just say, what's it called? The granulosa What's the cell called? It's just the granulosa. Right? I'm as you're saying this, Natalie. I'm literally having flashbacks to I can like remember from my pathology in medical
0: school the 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 picture. And it's, yeah, a, it's a two cell hypothesis. There's the thecal cells and the granulosa cells, and they work together. And steroid comes in or cholesterol comes in, it gets converted to androstenedione, which then moves over to the granulosa cells, and that's the cells that make estradiol or the predominant estrogen from the ovary. But that's the ovary's whole job, and if we If we're a hormone production factory dependent on metabolizing cholesterol, one, doesn't where you get your cholesterol probably matter from? And two, isn't supporting the enzymes that we need for this process hugely important? I'm a big believer that it is.
1: This is so fascinating. And I really love the, um, the total just reminder and refresher on basic GYN 101. This is just so interesting because it really... I mean, if any, anyone listening, after you've listened to all of my podcast episodes, if you don't see the link between what you are eating and how it affects all of your body after the this episode, I, I don't know what to tell you because, I mean, literally, we are connecting the dots from every organ system. It's our bodies... We have one body and our cells... Just because, you know, your gastrointestinal tract, it takes a different subspecialty training than your your heart uh, for heart disease, the training I'm doing, or, you know, the fact that Natalie's a reproductive endocrine in, um, infertility yeah. specialist in OBGYN and she's done her training. Just because it's separate specialists, it's one body and... You know we are affected by all of our cells throughout our body through through what we're eating and how stressed we are and how much we're moving and everything as a whole. And I really think that you've actually been able to
0: just truly explain how it's looped together. It's so fascinating. I just agree with you so much. I always say that I think plant-based eating is the best form of self-care you can give your body. To put in your body things that are simple, easily processed, give you the nutrients that you need, and don't negatively impact how your body is supposed to function. When, when someone offered you a diet that looks like that or something that's going to have hormone disruptors and chemicals that are going to modify you know, your endocrine system and have high insulin levels and, and cause all these other pro, you know, downstream byproducts from what you eat, it seems like the choice would be very simple to us. The problem is society and We could have a whole nother podcast on, you know, how industry has modified regulatory guidelines for food and what we're taught in school. And that has really changed because it's just what we're exposed to. Very often, a plant-based diet, we are not exposed to it and it feels foreign. And therefore, there's a barrier to even thinking that you could eat that way.
1: Yeah, that's true. And one of the big things I I discuss is, you know, barriers to going plant based and and getting through those with my patients. And I think it's just all so fascinating, especially because I think that you and anyone else that is in the OBGYN field out there that is seeing reproductive age women, you are Incredibly important in the prevention of the disease processes that the rest of us take care of later on in life. So, you know, I'm treating patients that are, some are seeing me young for preventive cardiology, but many people I'm seeing the sequelae of their lifestyle decisions years and years and years later. You are catching them all at the prime of their life, and you are able to make such
0: a huge impact on your patient's lifestyle choices for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I really think that, thank thank you. And I think that all OBGYNs especially, I mean, I did an OBGYN residency and nutrition or nutritional counseling is not part of what really comes up and what you should be talking to patients about at your annuals and other things. And And there's no reason why it shouldn't be. You know, as I said, I feel like just because if you're listening to this and you're in medicine or in medical school or in residency, or you're, you know, a primary care provider of some way to women, you should... Think about how you can really best help them along the course of their life. And some patients are resistant to this. And I see that too. You know, I think that sometimes as providers, if you're talking to an overweight patient, there's sometimes some resistance to wanting to talk about diet or losing weight because you feel like you're going to be have some negative relationship with the patient. I always just try to say, my job is to look out for you and to educate you. You can make the choices you want to make. It's your life. It's your body. My job is to give you da- data, give you facts and empower you to be in a position where you have all the information you need. You can then make whatever choice you want. You have free will. But if you're not helping patients get that information, even if it's a "Hey, here's where you can look at this," or this may be helpful to you, you know, you're not really helping them as much as you could, right? No, I totally agree, and I think that that's an
1: interesting point with uh, speaking with overweight patients. And I think that one thing, especially you know, women that are younger may be more sensitive to this being brought up by their doctor. I know this is a big, you know, push button issue. And I completely understand. I'm very sympathetic, empathetic to it. Um, One thing that I have found success with, with my younger female patients that are overweight, that come see me for for preventative cardiology is discuss with them success stories. You know, I, sometimes I, I look at my patients and I'm like, this can be you, you know, you can easily, you are, Able to modify your lifestyle and you know switch to a plant-based diet or even just make small changes and you are able to live your healthiest life. There is no one out there that doesn't deserve to live a life free of hypertension, you know, preventing coronary artery disease, free of diabetes. There's no one out there that doesn't deserve that. Everyone deserves it and everyone is capable of it. I tell every patient, no matter how overweight they are, that you absolutely can live a healthier life. You deserve it, and you're able to. Anyone can do it. It's just about giving them the right tools. I I talk about this a lot that I often think that a lot of providers don't believe in their patients and don't believe that their patients are necessarily going to make the lifestyle modification choices and i think one of the biggest barriers to physicians providing nutrition information is that a lot of times doctors you know will prejudge patients they see and think okay well this is not someone that's going to modify their lifestyle so i'm not even going to present them with the opportunity that is the biggest mistake because every patient deserves the opportunity i've seen patients lose 220 pounds and lose all of their hypertension and all of their diabetes, and so you know anyone can do it. It's just giving our patients the the opportunity. And and you know I don't have a nutritionist that I work with. I'm a cardiovascular disease fellow, and I started my plant based clinic with zero dollars. I just. Use my time wisely. So I created, uh, we use Epic as our EMR. I created smart phrases. Every patient goes home with a smart phrase sheet of where they can look up tons and tons and tons of resources for plant based nutrition. You know, I think that it is possible for physicians to start, you know, to have it change in our culture. But I think one of the other issues is that how many of our our colleagues are resistant to lifestyle modification themselves? You know, doctors can be sometimes incredibly unhealthy. And so I I think that that's a huge barrier as well for our patients.
0: I totally agree. I think it's perception, you know, if... A provider, if a physician doesn't want to acknowledge the benefits that diet modif- modification can have, you know, or perhaps they themselves are not following one of these or they themselves are overweight, sometimes they have a harder time diving into this concept or this topic, even though it could be highly beneficial to their patients. I think that the emerging literature is showing us that we have to pay attention to diet, that what we put in our body changes how it functions. And you know, that if we are a physician, we are advocates for our patients and it is our duty to, you know, stay up to date on this literature and to interpret it and to present it to our patients. I really, and I always tell patients this, my field is super personal. You know, it's a relationship between a provider and a patient. My patients, you know, are sharing their heartbreak and their story with me that you need a doctor that you can relate to and that you trust. And if you are a patient listening and you've approached diet with a, with any provider or physician and you got, um, it doesn't matter or, you know, didn't get the answer you want, And not, not even just about diet. I say this about fertility all the time. Get a new doctor, you know, speak out somebody else who's going to be a better fit for you because that person may not be right for you. You have to be an advocate for yourself as a person, as a patient, making sure that you're with, you know, the right provider who can help you and making sure that you're getting the education you need for your body. And I think that's why like you have this podcast so you can help educate people on things that they're not necessarily getting on a regular basis from their own physicians.
1: No, and I couldn't agree with you more about the fact that patients have to be their their best advocate. And uh, patients are essentially a consumer. If you are not liking the product you are purchasing, if you are seeing a doctor that is not giving you the respect you deserve, if you're seeing a doctor that is not partnering with you in your health, then you have to find a different doctor. Because I do think that, not listen, I'm not going to be everyone's best favorite cardiologist because, you know, I don't think many keto people are going out of their way to see me in the office. But listen, different strokes for different folks. You have to find a physician that uh, works for you. Although anyone out there that's keto that does want to come see me in the office, you are more than welcome. I am open to all patients, but um, I do think that, you know, you have to find a provider that you work well with and that listens to you. And I think that. Just like you're saying, in your specialty, of all specialties, it's a very intimate relationship between the patient. And their provider, and and I just I have to give you so much respect. I have so much respect for what you do because you are really taking care of women, not only at the you know prime of their life, but one of the most you know can be heartbreaking times of their life, but also one of the best times of their life when you're able to you know successfully help someone gain pregnancy. So I just I give you so much credit for what you do, and thank you for bringing nutrition into the scope of your practice because I know your time is limited, and I think that it's just highly beneficial to your patients. And for all OBGYNs that may be listening, you know, me as a cardiovascular disease fellow, I see these patients later on when they have hypertension, when they have hyperlipidemia, when they have diabetes. And I always wish that, you know, there was that catch all that that OBGYN that essentially served as their primary care provider before they ever came to see us, you know, once they're, you know, having actual chronic illness. I really do wish that, they're, that they would start talking to them about nutrition at a, at a younger stage if it was possible. If it's possible to integrate lifestyle modification into your practice and your specialty, I think it would be incredibly valuable because OBGYNs, I know so many of... Even my friends who are physicians,
0: they don't see a PCP. They literally only see their OB-GYN and that's it. Yeah, no, I totally... I mean, I... I mean, I feel like I challenge my OBGYN counterparts all the time. You know, I'm now on this huge, like, hey, fertility should be brought up at the annual, you know, not just your birth control. You need to start talking preventative fertility. You need to talk about diet. And I challenge them that, hey, it, you don't have to know all the information. It is hard to provide primary care. And that is why subspecialists exist. Find resources. You know, you have me for fertility. You know, you can, if you... I challenge them to say how can you best serve your patients? Is it, you know, making an epic document that has a list of resources that a the patient then can dive into and look at? Is it making a handout? Is it having friends who you can ask questions to and how can you change how you counsel people in your practice? I've certainly found that I've had OBGYN say, hey, I counsel my patients differently about fertility after listening to one of your podcasts or something simple, you know, and I think that you can incorporate the the what you're learning about the body into how you practice medicine, and you can make a bigger impact than you realize without taking tons of time. It's just about, you know, posing a question in a non-judgmental way and trying to just show a patient that you're their advocate and that you want them to have the best life that they can that's what we all want for our patients
1: i couldn't agree more and i think that there's such a, a huge space a uh, huge area of impact in um obgyn in general and you, in infertility but also in general obgyn to really make a difference um, in women when they are at this stage of life and to really help them to prevent disease even if it's just a one time conversation with you know you're overweight and let's just you know discuss it and you know, I, I don't expect every OBGYN to be a primary care provider, but just to have nutrition on their radar as something because it really does integrate
0: and find its way into every disease process that we see. Yeah. And the, the truth is, I mean, you, OBGYNs are primary care providers, whether we like it or not. I mean, <laughs> you're advanced, I mean, you do advanced gynecological surgery, you deliver babies, and you're experts on, you know, the maternal fetal connection. But as you even said with your friends, OBGYNs are the primary care provider for most reproductive age women. Most women don't go to another physician. And if that's the reality of the world we live in, We need to take care of women completely and not just partially. And I think that's hard and that may not be how we're all trained, but if that's the truth, that's how you serve your patients the best. And
1: it doesn't have to be, I always try to emphasize to everyone too, it doesn't have to be every single patient visit. Although I address obviously nutrition with my patients at every visit because it's a big part of what I do. I will say that, you know, not everyone has to do it at every patient visit. It can be at one of every five patient visits. It can just be a document at the end of your, you know, of your visit and, you know, certain patient visits are going to be filled with more acute issues. You know, time is very strapped as we know in medicine. And I just think that even just having it on your radar as a provider and just keeping it in your mindset that me as a, as a cardiologist, I would appreciate if physicians that are catching (laughs) patients at a younger age can just try to get it in there in some of the uh, prevention, just get prevention, just discussed even just a little bit because I just see so much disease that could be prevented if women just started
0: to focus on health and um, nutrition and lifestyle modification at a younger age. I just couldn't agree more. You know, I think we empower women the most from education
1: totally agree. Well, thank you so much, Natalie. And it has been amazing having you. And thank you for sharing with everyone all of your incredibly brilliant knowledge on fertility and women's health. And this has just been, I learned so much and you gave me just so much more information than I could have even imagined, especially the nice med school recap on how the (laughs) ovaries work, because I have not thought about that in a while. Um, So where can everyone find you on social media?
0: Yeah, thanks so much, Danielle, for having me. So I am on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. I also have a blog at NataliecrawfordMD.com and a podcast called As a Woman, which is we... amazing. Yeah, thank you. Um, where we, you know, we discuss life as a woman and we educate about our bodies, our fertility, and different issues that we face as women trying to advance into a professional world. So
1: it's, That's oh, what I can be found. You are so amazing. Thank you so much, Natalie. Thank
0: you, Danielle. Loved it. All right, friends. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something and enjoyed. This is officially the longest podcast in As a Woman now. Typically, they're a little shorter. So if you made it to this point, I'm so proud of you. Thank you so much for all your support and love. I'm just floored by it all. Can't wait to hear what you think of this if you never heard it over on Danielle's podcast. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at natalie Crawford md. Check out the blog, NatalieCrawfordMD.com, and reach out with any questions, thoughts for future episodes, comments, and feedback. I love them all. Have a great one.